What's up, everybody? This is Criminal Perspective, and I'm Chris. On this episode, I have the first ever and exclusive interview with Officer Tim Smith. Tim Smith was the first responding officer to the Trayvon Martin shooting on February 26, 2012, at the retreat at Twin Lakes in Sanford, Florida. What occurred less than two minutes before Officer Smith's arrival became one of the most publicized murder cases in modern history and was an archetype used to highlight the racial inequality within the justice system. To give a brief rundown of the case, 17-year-old Trayvon Martin was returning to his father's home at the retreat at Twin Lakes in Sanford, Florida, close to 8 p.m. on February 26. He was coming back from a nearby 7-Eleven where he innocently purchased Skittles and an Arizona watermelon fruit drink. As Trayvon Martin was walking through the gated community where his father lived, he started to be pursued by George Zimmerman, another resident of the community and a vigilante self-appointed neighborhood watchman who thought Trayvon Martin was acting suspiciously. Zimmerman called 911 and pursued Martin. At some point during the pursuit, Zimmerman lost track of Trayvon Martin and the 911 call was ended. Just seconds after the call finished, there was a confrontation between Martin and Zimmerman. This confrontation became physical and resulted in Trayvon Martin being shot and killed. Police officer Tim Smith, who you're about to hear from, was the first responding officer on the scene, arriving less than two minutes after George Zimmerman shot Trayvon Martin. We're going to hear from Tim about his interactions with George Zimmerman, what it was like testifying at George Zimmerman's trial, and how he feels about the case. This is the first time Officer Tim Smith has spoken publicly about the case outside of court. So I'd like to thank Officer Tim Smith for granting me this exclusive interview. I'm going to take a quick commercial break, and then I'll be right back with Officer Tim Smith, the first responder to the Trayvon Martin shooting. Joining me now is Tim Smith, who was the first responding officer at the Trayvon Martin shooting involving Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman in Sanford, Florida. The shooting occurred in February of 2012. How are you doing today, Tim? I'm doing pretty good, thanks. So... Take me back to that night. You, you've never spoken about this outside of court. Everybody saw your testimony. It was on live television at the George Zimmerman uh, trial. Take us back to the night, February 26th, and, and kind of walk us through what happened from your point of view. Um, I mean, it was a basic shift. I was uh, signed up for overtime that night, uh, so technically I wasn't even supposed to be working. And uh, it was a February night in Florida. It was, it was quiet. It was raining. And, uh, you know, the call came out as just your average uh, suspicious person's call. And, um, you know, so there was no really immediate response. I mean, I was about a mile, mile and a half away when the call came out. Uh, as, I was, as I was pulling up to the front entrance, it's a gated community. As I was pulling up to the front entrance, uh, the dispatch had relayed that they were getting a report of, of a shooting, shots fired. Uh, so as I was going through the gate, uh, was when the call came, was when the shots fired call came out and I remember driving around and, and checking out the different addresses that we were getting. Cause at this point we were starting to get multiple calls and, uh, I couldn't find anybody. So as I drove around, <clears throat> I ended up getting out of my patrol car and walking in between the buildings. And as I came around the building, that was when I first encountered, uh, Zimmerman, and he was the only person that was outstanding. And I said, uh, I said, hey, man, did, did you see what happened? And he said, yeah. And as I asked him that, I looked out into the grassy area and I could see a, a person laying there. And I said, is, is that guy shot? He said, yeah. And I said, oh, did you see who shot him? He said, yeah. I said, well, who shot him? He said, well, I did. What, what was his demeanor like? Was he calm? Was he excited? Uh, it was more uh, 
a deer in headlights, kind of like a stunned, uh, you know, not really, wasn't overexcited, wasn't blah or anything like that. Just you could tell that he had just experienced something traumatic uh, and he was trying to process everything that had just gone on. And, you know, at that point, I, I gave him, you know, law enforcement commands, you know, uh, asked him if he was still armed. He said, yeah, he put his hands up. He kind of leaned sideways and, you know, I could see the firearm on his hip. And at that point, I gave him all the standard commands, you know, hands on top of your head, you know, down to your knees. Did you feel like you were in danger at that point? Did you feel like he was a threat to you? Uh, it was an unknown scenario. It was, it, you know, it was one of those I wasn't sure. Uh, clearly, he just admitted to me that he shot somebody. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, there's always there's always that. Is he did he shoot him because he's a psychopath, because he's on a murderous rampage or, did, you know, what's the story behind this? So for my safety, obviously, you know, I I drew my firearm on him. He followed all the commands. He, was, he complied to everything I told him to do. Uh, at which point, once I got him secured in handcuffs, I removed the firearm from his hip, secured it uh, in the trunk of my patrol car, and secured him in the the rear of my of my police car. So I think I think a lot of people at this point would wonder. So you have a scenario here where you have to make a snap decision. You have a man who just shot somebody. You don't know if he's a threat to the citizens around you, to yourself. You kind of have this, you can administer first aid or assistance to Trayvon Martin, or you can keep track of George Zimmerman. Um, what's what's the protocol there, and what, what got you to make the decision to uh, focus on Zimmerman? Well, I mean, like, like I said, he, he admitted to shooting somebody. I don't know as a person, not just even a police officer, but as a, as a human, I don't know what this guy's intentions are. So if I if he, he says to me, yeah, I shot him, and I immediately disregard anything for my own personal safety, and I run over to to what was we later learned was Trayvon Martin laying in the grass, and I started administering first aid on Trayvon, and this guy opens fire on me, now I'm useless to everybody. I'm useless to Trayvon. I'm useless to myself, and at that point we gotta we gotta take care of the threat before we can do anything else. Right. So at this point, Zimmerman's in the back of your patrol car. And what happens next? Uh, several other officers at that point were arriving on scene. Uh, and I'd given them direction. Hey, this guy said he shot him. Uh, I haven't seen him move. He claimed he only fired one shot. They, they started administering first aid, uh, fire rescues en route. Uh, the paramedics are getting there. They're attending to Trayvon. Were, were you the one who called in fire and rescue? I did. Actually, okay. there, uh, you know, the audio is out there somewhere in audio land uh, where you hear me come on the radio and say, you know, I need the FD. I've got one person down with a gunshot wound. I've got one in custody. Um, and then at the same time, too, obviously Trayvon is the priority because right. he has a gunshot wound. And then I let fire rescue know, hey, because at, at that time also I noticed that Zimmerman had had some injuries. Uh, to his face in the back of his head. And I said, Hey, this guy's going to need some medical clearance before we can go any further with him also. So at this point, who do you talk to first? Do you talk to witnesses? Do you talk to Zimmerman? 
I explained to Zimmerman, I knew because of, you know, obviously just admitted to shooting somebody, this is going to go beyond a patrol officer's level. This isn't going to be something that just, uh, you know, it's not like a, we got somebody shoplifting at Walmart. This is obviously this man has just admitted to shooting someone. So I know that a detective is going to handle this case. I know that it's going to go higher up than me. And I don't want to taint this investigation. Because obviously at the time, we had no idea what kind of national uh, implications this case was going to have. Just as, yeah, a, sure. just as good law enforcement practice, you don't want to ruin in any investigation. Mm. So I know he's going to get interviewed. I know he's going to have to tell his side of the story. So I don't want to read a Miranda because I don't want to risk messing that up. I don't want to miss misconstruing anything because this was at a time in law enforcement before we had body cameras. Uh, you know, so I didn't want to risk getting anything wrong. I wanted him to be interviewed on video or audio so that it, he was locked into a statement that we could go back and play back. So you, you try to maintain procedure as much as, as possible in this. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, at that point, it's a it's a shooting investigation. I mean, this wasn't. I mean, it, I'm not trying to say anything bad about the city of Sanford, but this wasn't my first shooting as a police officer. Uh, you know, so I had understood what needed to happen and where we weren't going to try to mess things up. So I'm going to handle this and I'm going to follow this to the best of my ability, to the best of my knowledge, so that we have a a good investigation. Again, because at the time, I didn't know this was going to become what it was. This was just a standard shooting scene. Yeah. But even still, we followed it to the best of our abilities on every shooting scene. So were you involved in securing the crime scene, or from there, were you just with Zimmerman and transporting him to the station? What, what was your uh, your role after that? Yeah, so at that point, because I got him into custody, he was mine, essentially. I was in charge of all of his movements where we were going to go, <clears throat> uh, just at the discretion of the detective. So I waited for the primary detective and said, you know, hey, if he's not going to the hospital, he doesn't need any medical treatment that's immediate, go ahead and bring him down to the police station and we'll put all of his clothing in evidence and we'll go ahead and do the recorded interview here at the station. So once I got that word, I transported him from the shooting scene to the police station and then walked him up to the second floor into the interview room uh, and turned him over to the detective. You sat in there during the interrogation, correct? Yeah. During the interview process, was there anything that stood out to you that you can recollect? <clears throat> I mean, there wasn't anything out of the ordinary. The brief explanation that he uttered while he was on scene with me didn't seem to be too different than anything that i mean obviously he went into more detail with the detective but the brief uh statements that he made while he was on scene with me seemed pretty consistent to what he gave the detective so there wasn't anything to where i needed to relay and say hey listen while he was on scene he made a spontaneous utterance and said x y and z while we were there and then now he's telling you something completely different than what he had said to me zimmerman was legally registered to carry a concealed firearm. So within that, to, to be able to do that, you have to be familiar with when you're within your legal rights to use it. Do you think that that makes a difference between Zimmerman and someone who they, they don't know those legal rights that a, that a registered gun owner knows? Do you feel that that made a difference? I do know. I mean, I do know that he had a valid concealed weapons permit. 
I do know that in order to obtain a concealed weapons permit, he had to go through the appropriate classes. Um, so, I mean, he, he was afforded that knowledge that he obtained while he was in those classes. Um, I don't necessarily believe that that gives you an advantage over someone who hasn't been through those classes. I mean, I think some of that information that you learn in those classes is just kind of common sense. And coupled with the way that the law, the, the way that the standard ground law is written, it um, maybe maybe he knew, maybe he didn't know. At the same time, too, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know how well he was paying attention in those classes. I mean, yeah. he could have fallen asleep in the back and Pat managed to pass the test, uh, for all I know. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure a lot of people listening to this are going to want to know, why wasn't he charged with any type of crime that night? I mean, that was the that was the million dollar thing. Uh, you know, what a lot of people didn't understand was whenever there's a homicide, we give a phone call to the on-call state attorney. And law enforcement in the state of Florida is not the, the law of the land. They don't have the ultimate say. It's the state attorney's office. You know, we can make – we as police officers can make the best arrest, have all of the probable cause in the world. It meets the statute to a T, and the case gets sent to the state attorney's office, and the state attorney's office will send us a letter a month and a half later that says, oh, we've decided to not prosecute. Sometimes they give us a reason. Sometimes they don't give us a reason, and, uh, and sometimes it's very frustrating. So in this particular instance, because it was a stand-your-ground case, uh, a phone call was made to the by the detective to the on-call state attorney, and the on-call state attorney said, what you're giving me right now, do not make an arrest. You don't have enough. If you make this arrest, I'm going to no-file this case, which means he's going to walk scot-free, and we're done. We're done here because double jeopardy comes into play. We've already charged him with it. So if we charge him with it and the state drops it and then something happens later, we can't go back and recharge him with it again. Yeah. So, you know, <clears throat> he he was super cooperative, so he wasn't deemed a flight risk. So we didn't have any reason to believe that he was going to run, uh, that he was going to try to skip town or jump out of the country or anything like that. So whenever we make an arrest, there's something – that's called uh, the right to speedy trial. You have 180 days to take a case to trial. Now, every defendant has the option to waive that right to speedy trial. Uh, but in this particular situation, if the defendant, Zimmerman, chose to not waive it, and he would have to go to trial within 180 days. That means the detectives and everybody involved in this case has to have all of the evidence put together and all of their T's crossed and their I's dotted in 180 days because it's going to go to a jury. And if it flops, again, you can't go back and recharge. So he's not a flight risk, so investigate it further. So when the state attorney's office said, based on what you're telling me right now, you know you don't have enough, go ahead and further the investigation, and then we can revisit it. Do you think that the decision to charge would have been different had this crime not been tried by the media? Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Do you think they would have not filed charges against Zimmerman? I think just the opposite. I think I think had there been an opportunity to properly investigate this where he wasn't tried 
by social media and all of the social media warriors out there, I think you would have had an appropriate charge uh, that fit the bill. I think I think you would have seen something along the lines of manslaughter come into play. So the trial itself, you've testified in several other trials. You've been a police officer for what is it now, fifteen years? At that point, it was still a you know fairly you you weren't a rookie. Um, what what was that trial like in regards to all the other uh, court hearings you've experienced in the past? Uh, it was a media circus. Typically, when you have a trial, you have some of the some of the victims' family members are there. Uh, sometimes, sometimes the defendants' family members are there, and it's a very small crowd uh, in the gallery. This was um, people from sheriffs of not just Seminole County but other counties, chiefs of police from all over, uh, you know, news reporters from CNN and MSNBC and Fox News, and all of, all of the major media outlets were all there, and and you just as many cameras as you would find at a at a professional sports game. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, I mean, it was, it was crazy. It was, it was a circus. It was a media circus. What was testifying in that like? Uh, very nerve wracking. You know, it? it's, uh, well, I mean, you, uh, police officers go to court all the time. Yeah. Anywhere from, even if it's as something as minute as traffic court, they're in court weekly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you get used to that. That's usually, that's not a big deal. Uh, but when you when you walk into a room and the gallery is full, standing room only, and as soon as you walk in, you hear the hundred clicks of cameras going off, and there is uh, you know the, the big giant cameras with the red lights on top, and they let you know what camera's on, and and uh, and, and you sit down in the in the in the witness box, and you turn around, and there's a giant camera staring you in the face and all of a sudden the red light comes on and then they go can you tell us your name and at that moment you go what the hell is my name yeah where am i right now uh <laughs> yeah i mean it was just it it wasn't it was unlike anything that i had ever been a part of when it comes to court do you feel like during the examination and the cross examination either or or both sides were playing to the media a little bit or do you feel that they were a hundred percent invested invested into this case seeking the truth seeking justice how did it come off to you from the state side um i felt like i felt like they were trying to play the media you know they were a special prosecutor was brought in uh from jacksonville hand selected by the governor Um, so she, you know, she had her press conferences and said that she, you know, she was putting her top attorneys on this case. And I feel like they, at that point, there was something to prove. So they were, I felt like they were pandering to the media. They were pandering to the masses and they were doing it simply because it was what they needed to do to say they did something. So do you feel like that they were genuinely seeking to convict him or, or it was more of a dog and pony show to placate the masses? That it was, I mean, it, it was, it was a hundred percent a dog and pony show. There was nothing about it. I mean, and it's clear to anybody who, who watched it from an outsider's perspective, they weren't, they weren't seeking justice for anyone other than themselves at that point. 
Yeah. And that's why I think it was such an easy case for, for Zimmerman's attorneys to win. When the shooting happened, Zimmerman had walked past a, a courtyard type area that was between two town housing uh, units. When he walked back, that's when the confrontation happened. Can you walk us through what Zimmerman's account of things was? Yeah. So what he said was, is when he exited the truck, he saw Trayvon go around uh, the corner, which was in that courtyard between the two buildings. At that point, he lost sight of him. Uh, so as he followed around and came around the same corner, uh, from what he his recount was, is that Zimmerman or that Trayvon wasn't there anymore. So he said he took a few steps in, approximately about 10 feet, uh, which at that point was when he was around the time he was hanging up with the dispatcher. And according to his side of the story, as he hung up the phone, he turned around, saw Trayvon come out of one of the the patio areas uh, of one of the townhomes and was confronted by him. And his words were, uh, Trayvon said to him, hey, man, do you have a problem? Zimmerman said no, and Trayvon said, well, you do now. And according to Zimmerman, Trayvon punched him, which knocked him to the ground. And at that point, Trayvon uh, straddled him and began punching him in the face. Was there evidence consistent with this? Yeah, I mean, it was a rainy evening, so, I mean, everything was wet. Um, But we found uh, in one of the patios uh, semi-evaporated footprints which would lead someone to believe that a person had been there relatively recently. Uh, but Zimmerman alone, uh, you know, he had, he had the lacerations to his nose. He had the lacerations to the back of his head. One of the things that he claimed was that as Trayvon was punching him, his head was, was banging off of the sidewalk. So he had the lacerations to the face, to the front of the face, to the back of the, the back of the head. Uh, and one of the things that I even noted in my report was that, Zimmerman's clothing, the back of his clothing specifically, was wet, extremely wet, wetter than the front. And it also had grass on it, which would be evident that at some point he had laid on his back in the grass. Mm-hmm. Um, and according to him, it was at that point, that's when he said that he was able to kind of shimmy down uh, enough to reach in for his firearm and he fired a single shot point blank, uh, center mass. Uh, and I guess at that point was when he told the detective Trayvon said, you got me fell off of him. Uh, and that's when Zimmerman ran back towards the sidewalk where I encountered him. So you being there at the crime scene, you're very familiar. I mean, you were there right after this shooting happened. So would that evidence also be consistent with, Maybe Zimmerman's walking back and then he spots Trayvon and says maybe like, hey, or confronts him and tries to stop him. And then a fight ensues. Would the evidence also support that scenario? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what we know is, is that a confrontation took place. What we can't prove is who initiated the confrontation. We only have one account. How big of a difference does that make to you? I mean, if we could, if we had a witness who who could say, Zimmerman started the confrontation. I saw him. He punched Trayvon. He, at that point, it becomes huge because now it's not a I'm standing my ground. He, at that point, is the aggressor. He is, you know, then you're definitely looking at like second degree murder. 
And that right there would have changed the entire course of the investigation. A hundred percent. The problem with all the witnesses that we had is no one saw. Everyone heard. Uh, and you can't, it's, I mean, you can't use, well, I heard arguing on the stand. I mean, you can, uh, and they, you know, they tried, they brought in people and, and had them testify who only heard things. Mm. Um, but you can't prove that, you know, this is the individual that started it, but yes, no, a hundred percent. It's a hundred percent possible that Zimmerman, when he came around the corner, uh, hung up with dispatch and saw Trayvon and started the confrontation with Trayvon and Trayvon was defending himself and that Trayvon, you know, pounced on, you know, Zimmerman pounced on Trayvon first and Trayvon started beating him up because at that point he was defending himself. That would change the investigation completely. The unfortunate reality of the situation is that we don't have anyone who can say that's what happened. So Trayvon Martin was doing nothing illegal at the time that Zimmerman started following him. Zimmerman just perceived Martin as suspicious. I believe this is the catalyst of what was to come. As a trained law enforcement officer, how do you critique Zimmerman's actions? Would you have done the same thing if you were in Zimmerman's position? Or do you think Zimmerman was acting with inexperience and trying to perform a service that was beyond his depth? Yes. I mean, as a trained law enforcement officer, you know, I see things all the time that are outside of my jurisdiction. uh, And, no, if it's not if it's not a crime that's being committed, you know, yeah, you contact the local law enforcement agency and you you hang back. You don't put your you don't intentionally put yourself in harm's way. Um, now, when you're in a common area like where they were, it's a public area. Zimmerman, just like Trayvon, they both have the right to be there. They both mm-hmm. have the right to walk down that sidewalk. They both have the right to you know. To, to do what they were doing. Um, but no, as a law enforcement officer, I don't, I'm not gonna, unless I physically see a felony being committed, I'm not going above and beyond to just follow somebody to see what they're up to. And yeah, I mean, I don't, I would, I would venture to say that George was trying to be a hero. He mm. was trying to be that guy that he's not, when he says that, you know, he says in the audio that we had some burglaries uh, in that area. I mean, it wasn't wrong, um, you know. But burglaries happen all over. Yeah. Burglaries are a crime of opportunity, so it's not just wasn't just isolated in that subdivision. Um, so yeah, I mean, ultimately, that's that's what it was. Is he wanted to be the guy that that found the burglar and and caught the burglar and got the key to the city. With your law enforcement training, you would not have acted the same way. That was not the correct way to handle things. Not, no. I mean, you know, he, he, up until that point, he did everything fine. He called, he saw somebody who was suspicious to him in the neighborhood. He contacted law enforcement. Law enforcement was en route. At that point, he should have just gone, gone home. Just go home. You know, we'll get there and we'll drive around. We'll take a look around. We'll see if we see anything. We'll see if we see any car windows smashed out or if there's any, you know, doors on houses that are open or anything like that. And we'll take a look around and we'll see if we see anything illegal. And if we don't, then we leave. Yeah. Do you think that justice was served for Trayvon Martin in this case? No, not at all. First of all, even if Zimmerman had gone to prison, uh, you know, uh, uh, it's, I mean, it's an unfortunate reality, but a, a child lost his life. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it, it sucks. I, I mean, ultimately, there really is no true justice. Um, I think that 
and I, bl- I'm, I, I blame the media. I blame the media. I blame social media. They did more of an injustice to Trayvon Martin than I think anybody involved, directly involved, indirectly involved uh, in this case could have ever done. They ruined any chance of any type of true justice that we as law enforcement could have got for the, uh, for the Martin family. Well, Tim, thank you so much for coming on and talking to me. I really appreciate it. And uh, I, can't, I can't believe that I was afforded the opportunity to, to speak to you about this as someone who's so closely involved in this case. I mean, a, a lot of people have been waiting to hear what you've wanted to say outside of the capacity of court and things like that. So I, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Not a problem. <laughs>